Chapter four of Guy Fox or a complete history of the gunpowder treason AD sixteen oh five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ed Damera. Guy Fox or a complete history of the gunpowder treason AD sixteen oh five by Thomas Lathbury. Chapter four the jesuits privy to the plot the narrative continued down to the period of the discovery of the treason before the narrative is carried further it will be desirable to allude to those clerical individuals who were privy to this conspiracy the actors were as has been seen laymen but there were some priests of the church of rome and members of the order of jesuits who were no less implicated in the design than those who actually worked in the mine. Garnet, Gerard, and Tesmond were Englishmen by birth, and yet, for the sake of advancing the interests of the Church of Rome, they hesitated not to enter into the plot. Garnet was evidently a man of considerable attainments, nor is there any reason to believe that he was not, in many respects, an amiable man. His principles, however, were such that he could, without scruple, enter into a conspiracy against his sovereign and his country. There is reason to believe that he was privy to the design from the commencement, if he did not even suggest it to Catsby. At all events, these Jesuits were made acquainted with all the proceedings of the conspirators, whom they aided and encouraged in their work by such counsel as the Church of Rome is accustomed to impart to her deluded votaries. Even Catsby at one time had his scruples. He was not satisfied that it was right to sacrifice several Roman Catholic peers, who would be present at the opening of the session. His scruples were submitted to Garnet. It is, however, more than probable that Catsby applied to Garnet, in order that he might be able to remove the scruples of others, should any arise. A case, therefore, was proposed, and to the following effect. Whether, for the good of the church against heretics, it would be lawful, amongst many innocents, to destroy some innocents? Garnet replied that, if the advantage to the church would be greater, by taking away some of the Roman Catholic lords, together with many of their enemies, it would be lawful to destroy them all. Indeed, says Fuller, the good husbandman in the gospel permitted the tares to grow for the corn's sake, whereas here by the contrary counsel of the Jesuit, the corn, so they reputed it, was to be rooted up for the tares' sake. He also gave an illustration from the case of a besieged town, which must be subjected to the horrors of war, even though some friends of the besiegers are dwelling within its walls. It was this determination of Garnett's that quieted the doubts of the whole party throughout the proceedings. Rookwood was staggered when the matter was first proposed to him, but he was satisfied when Catsby mentioned Garnett's decision. The Jesuit wished to obtain the formal consent of the Pope, but Catsby argued that it had been already granted in the two bulls, the object of which was to prevent James from succeeding to the throne. 
keys was induced to enter into the plot by these arguments while bates catsby's servant was assured by another jesuit not only that he might lawfully conceal but actually participate in the treason it has already been stated that bates confessed to tesmond in the church of rome confession precedes the sacrament and in confession bates revealed all the particulars of the plot still he was encouraged in the treason by his ghostly counsellor in short the evidence of the participation of the jesuits in the plot is of such a description that it cannot be disputed by any one who examines it the narrative has already been brought down to the autumn of 1605 when the parliament was prorogued from october to november the fifth on saturday evening october twenty sixth ten days previous to the day fixed for the opening of parliament a letter addressed to lord monteagle was delivered by a person unknown to his lordship's footman in the street with a strict injunction to deliver it into his master's own hands this circumstance took place at seven o'clock just as the nobleman was about to sit down to supper the letter was put into his lordship's hand by the servant on opening it he found it written in a very illegible hand and without any date or subscription monteagle summoned one of his attendants to assist him in deciphering the epistle which was couched in the following terms my lord out of the love i bear to some of your friends i have a care of your preservation therefore i would advise you as you tender your life to devise some excuse to shift off your attendance at this parliament for god and man have concurred to punish the wickedness of this time and think not slightly of this advertisement but retire yourself into your country where you may expect the event in safety for though there be no appearance of any stir yet i say they shall receive a terrible blow this parliament and yet they shall not see who hurts them this council is not to be condemned because it may do you good and can do you no harm for the danger is past as soon as you have burnt this letter and i hope god will give you the grace to make a good use of it whose holy protection i commend you footnote a strange letter from a strange hand by a strange messenger without date to it name at it and i had almost said sense in it a letter which even when it was opened was still sealed such the affected obscurity therein and footnote dark indeed were the words in the first instance monteagle viewed the matter as a hoax intended to prevent him from attending the opening of the session still he deemed it the safest course not to conceal its contents accordingly he hastened off to whitehall at that late hour when too the streets of london were not lighted as they are in our day and submitted the letter to the earl of salisbury cecil one of the secretaries of state it does not appear that cecil laid much stress upon the letter at the same time he expressed an opinion that it might refer to some design of the papists respecting which he had received some information from various quarters his information however did not relate to any plot but merely to an attempt on the part of the romanists 
at the commencement of the session to obtain a toleration for their worship and the relaxation of some of the penal laws various attempts have been made to shift the odium of the conspiracy from the church of rome and also from any members of that church some roman catholic writers have not scrupled to say that the whole was a trick of cecil's and that king james was privy to the design which was entered upon by the court for the purpose of rendering the romanists odious and to pave the way for more stringent laws against recusants the assertion that the whole plot was a trick of cecil's intended to render the romanists odious to their countrymen was not advanced till sixty years after the event no one at the time questioned the reality of the conspiracy the confessions of the parties in the secret letters of sir everard digby preclude the possibility of even entertaining such an absurd notion not one of the conspirators complained of being deceived into the plot either at his trial or execution nor did any of their apologists deny the fact of the treason the assertion was worthy of that church from whom it proceeded mr hallam the most unexceptionable witness thus argues on this point but to deny that there was such a plot or which is the same thing to throw the whole on the contrivance and management of cecil as has sometimes been done argues great effrontery in those who lead and great stupidity in those who follow the letter to monteagle the discovery of the powder the simultaneous rising in arms of warwickshire are as indisputable as any facts in history what then had cecil to do with the plot except that he hit upon the clue to the dark illusions in the letter to monteagle of which he was courtier enough to let the king take the credit james's admirers have always reckoned this as he did himself as vast proof of sagacity yet there seems no great acuteness in the discovery even if it had been his own he might have recollected the circumstances of his father's catastrophe which would naturally put him on the scent of gunpowder in recent times however it has been the policy of roman catholic writers to represent the conspiracy as the act of a few desperate characters desperate indeed they were yet they were not men of desperate fortunes nor had they suffered under the execution of the laws but the sole principle that influenced them was one of religion they were willing to risk all for the sake of promoting the interest of the church of rome it will also be seen hereafter that the pope and some papal sovereigns approved of the deed as to the report that the court were aware of the design long before the search which was made in consequence of the letter it is as destitute of foundation as the other the court knew that some design was on foot nor were they surprised since such had been the case throughout the reign of elizabeth and the court was still composed of the same great statesmen as to any knowledge of this particular plot the court were not in possession of it the king of france had informed the ministers that some secret plot was going on but beyond this information the court had no knowledge on the subject the secular priests also who were protected by bancroft intimated that some dark plot was concocting but they were as ignorant of the particulars as the ministers all the information which james and his ministers received from the continent amounted to merely an assurance that a treason was hatching 
but respecting the traders and their proceedings they could learn nothing these intimations undoubtedly rendered cecil and james suspicious of the letter to monteagle but the letter conveyed the first certain intelligence that the danger was so near and so imminent when cecil had read the letter he laid it before the lord chamberlain and the earls of worcester and northampton Montego was anxious that it should receive every consideration. They immediately connected the letter with the intelligence respecting the designs of the papists, of which they had been previously warned. It was determined, therefore, to submit the letter to the king, and not to take any steps in the business until they had obtained his majesty's orders. On Thursday, October 31st, the king returned from Royston, and on the next day Cecil submitted the letter to his inspection. It appears that Cecil offered no opinion concerning the letter. He merely placed it in His Majesty's hands. After a little pause, the king expressed an opinion that it ought not to be despised. Cecil, perceiving that the king viewed the matter more seriously than he had anticipated, referred him to one sentence. For the danger is past as soon as you have burnt the letter which he conceived must have been written by a fool or a madman, since if the danger was passed as soon as the letter was destroyed, as if burning the letter could ward off the danger, the warning was of small consequence. The king connected the expression with the former sentence, that they should receive a terrible blow at this parliament, and yet should not see who hurt them. Taking the two sentences together, the king immediately fancied that there was an allusion to some attempt by gunpowder. An insurrection, or any other attempt, during the sitting of Parliament, could not be unseen, could not be momentarily executed. The king interpreted the clause thus, that the danger would be sudden and as quickly over as the burning of the paper in the fire, taking the words, as soon, in the sense of, as quickly. He suggested, therefore, that the letter must refer to an explosion of gunpowder, and that the spot chosen for it must be under or near the House of Lords. It is remarkable that Cecil himself had intimated to some of his colleagues, before the King's return from Royston, that the letter must refer to an explosion of gunpowder. The very same suspicion also crossed the mind of the Earl of Suffolk, the Lord Chamberlain. This suspicion, however, was concealed from the king by the two statesmen. His majesty instantly took the same view of the letter, though he was totally unacquainted with the opinions of his two counsellors. Popish authors have laboured to prove that the treason was either planned by, or at least known to, the court, because the king so readily referred the letter to an explosion by gunpowder. Cecil and Suffolk had conceived the same opinion, though it does not appear that they thought of gunpowder secreted under the House of Lords. But what proof does this circumstance furnish of any previous knowledge, even on the part of the court, much less of contrivance? Was it strange that they should thus interpret such a mysterious letter? Cecil and Suffolk were fully aware of the plots which had been devised against Elizabeth. They knew that on more than one occasion the traitors had contemplated the death of the queen by means of gunpowder. With these facts fresh in their recollection, it was perfectly natural to interpret the letter to signify some attempt of the same kind. In short, 
no other interpretation could reasonably have been put upon it that the king himself should have suspected some attempt by means of gunpowder was also to be expected he was well aware of the practices of the church of rome and it is probable that on this occasion he recollected the fate of his father king henry whose death was accomplished by an explosion of gunpowder to king james therefore really belongs the honour of discovering the gunpowder treason for though cecil and suffolk had conceived the same idea yet they do not appear to have entertained the notion of a mine under the house of lords besides the two lords did not communicate their suspicions to the king the remarkable part of the business therefore is the fact that the three individuals should have so readily struck upon the same idea it must however be stated that the interpretation put by the king upon the clause relative to the burning of the letter was not the true one for it is pretty clear that the writer wished monteagle to absent himself from the parliament and to burn the letter to avoid suspicion of being privy to the plot but though we may admit that the king's interpretation of the clause was not that which the writer intended yet we must acknowledge that his majesty's suggestion was most providential and sufficient to justify the strong language used in the act of parliament for the observance of the fifth of november let it be remembered that timidity was one of james's infirmities and fear is usually very quick-sighted at this first interview with the king no plan was adopted for their further course the king suggested a search but cecil did not give his sanction it appears to have been his aim to delay the search a little longer and therefore he quitted the royal presence with a jest what his motives were for not complying with the king's suggestion cannot be ascertained in all probability he was anxious to consult his colleagues we may have thought that the king's apprehensions relative to the concealment of gunpowder under the house of lords were groundless he did not however think lightly of that matter though he jested with his majesty for he immediately laid the whole case before the lords with whom he had previously consulted telling them what the king had said and suggested it was agreed that cecil should wait on the king the next day the next day accordingly being saturday he introduced the subject again to the notice of his majesty at this interview the lord chancellor was also present it was now determined that the lord chamberlain by virtue of his office should examine all the parts contiguous to the house of lords and especially the lower offices in order that he might judge from the appearances which might present themselves whether there was a probability of any such danger to prevent the circulation of idle rumours as well as to allow the conspirators to carry their plans as near to completion as possible the examination was deferred until the following monday november fourth being the day preceding that fixed for the opening of the session it has never been satisfactorily ascertained who was the writer of the letter but it is remarkable that the circumstance was made known to the conspirators within a very brief space after its delivery to lord monteagle that one of the party penned it there can be no doubt for they had proceeded with such secrecy that no other person had any idea of such a design 
by the interposition of providence one who was anxious to save an individual nobleman from death brought destruction not only upon himself but also upon all his associates neither the writer nor the bearer of the letter was ever known it is probable that the writer himself was the bearer as it is unlikely that the man who could pen it and who felt so much anxiety about the life of lord montagle would commit it to the custody of another on sunday evening october twenty seventh the day after the delivery of the letter a person called on thomas winter and related the circumstance this person was the servant of montagle who had been called in to assist in deciphering the letter winter communicated the intelligence to catsby and recommended instant flight but the latter was determined to ascertain the exact amount of information which had been communicated to monteagle which he hoped to discover by watching the movements of the government agents near the parliament house winter therefore remained at white webs with catsby while fox was sent to london to watch the proceedings of the court fox left them on wednesday morning october thirtieth and returned in the evening with the gratifying intelligence that he found everything in the cellar just as he had left it they now hoped that the letter was disregarded and that the danger of discovery was over on the thursday winter returned to london and on friday he met catsby and tresham at barnet tresham who was related to monteagle's wife was suspected of being the writer of the letter and was questioned on the subject by catsby he denied however that he had any knowledge of the matter and it appears from winter's confession that his denial was believed by the other conspirators on saturday november second in the evening tresham and winter met again in lincoln's inn fields on this occasion tresham related several particulars of the interviews between the king and cecil how he became acquainted with these particulars does not appear both Catsby and Winter deemed it necessary now to think of flight, but the former would not take that step without seeing Percy, who was not yet come up from the country. On Percy's arrival on the Sunday, he recommended that they should remain and await the issue. All the conspirators were now in great perplexity. On Monday, November 4th, Catsby went into the country, and Percy, to the seat of the earl of northumberland fox remained to fire the train as had been previously arranged at this time therefore they were uncertain whether they were discovered or whether the treason was still unknown on monday afternoon agreeably to the previous arrangement the lord chamberlain accompanied by lord montagle and winyard keeper of the wardrobe proceeded to examine the rooms under the house of lords they came at last to the vault or cellar which had been taken by percy here they saw the coals and wood which had been deposited there by the conspirators to conceal the barrels of gunpowder the cellar was at the disposal of winyard and it appears to have been his privilege to let it for his own profit on being questioned by the lord chamberlain winyard replied that he had let the cellar to thomas percy with the adjoining house and that the wood and coals were the property of that gentleman at this stage of the examination the lord chamberlain saw a man standing in a corner of the cellar 
who stated that he was Percy's servant, and that he was left by his master in charge of the house and cellar. This individual was Guy Fawkes, who was appointed to fire the train. The Lord Chamberlain carelessly remarked to Fawkes that his master was well provided by his large stock of fuel against the blasts of winter. On leaving the cellar, Lord Monteagle intimated his suspicion that Percy was the writer of the letter. This suspicion entered his mind as soon as Percy's name was mentioned, recollecting the friendship that had subsisted between them. Footnote. I quote the following passage from the continuation of the history of England from Sir James Mackintosh in Lardner's Cabinet Cyclopedia, for the purpose of showing how unqualified the continuator is for the task which he has undertaken. Search was accordingly made, and the powder was found concealed under billets of wood and faggots, but all was left in the same state as before to lull the conspirators into security. Such is the way in which this gentleman writes history. It will be seen from the narrative that, at the search to which this writer refers, the gunpowder was not discovered. The parties returned to the council, and having made their report, it was debated whether the search should be carried further. What dependence can be placed on the statements of a writer who confounds two circumstances with each other, or rather is not aware of more than one search, or attempt at a search having been made. End footnote. The Lord Chamberlain returned immediately to the King, to whom, with the Council, he related all that he had seen, mentioning also the suspicion of Lord Monteagle respecting Percy. He expressed his surprise that so large a quantity of fuel should be deposited in the cellar, when it was well known that the house was seldom occupied by Percy. It appears, too, that he did not consider that the appearance of Fox was much like that of a servant. The king still insisted that it was necessary to make a rigid search, and that the wood and coals must be removed. It occurred to him that they were placed there to conceal the gunpowder, for it was His Majesty's firm conviction that some such attempt was alluded to by the writer of the letter. The members of the council, who were then present, concurred also in the same opinion. Still they were in doubt as to the mode in which the search should be conducted. They were, on the one hand, anxious for the safety of the king's person, and, on the other, fearful, lest, if nothing of the kind should be discovered, they might be exposed to ridicule for entertaining groundless fears, unbecoming in statesmen and the ministers of the crown. It was suggested also that, if the search proved fruitless, the Earl of Northumberland might feel himself aggrieved, in consequence of his relationship to Percy, the owner of the house. All the members of the council agreed in the necessity of instituting a search, but their opinions respecting the manner in which it should be effected widely differed. James insisted that they must necessarily adopt one of two courses, either search the cellar narrowly, or leave the matter altogether, and go to the house the next day, just as if no suspicion had ever existed. It was therefore determined at length that a search should be made, but to prevent any sinister report, supposing nothing was discovered, it was ordered that Winyard, the keeper of the wardrobe, should search the cellar 
under the pretense of having lost some of the hangings which had been placed in his custody. The king also suggested that the search should be conducted under the direction of a magistrate. Accordingly, Sir Thomas Nivet, a magistrate for Westminster, proceeded with a small and chosen band to the Parliament House at midnight, while the king and his councillors remained at Whitehall. At the entrance to the cellar they discovered Fawkes standing with his cloak and boots on, as if about to take a journey. He had just made all his arrangements within when the magistrate and his party approached. Nivet apprehended him immediately, and then the party proceeded to remove some of the wood and coals. They soon came to a barrel of gunpowder, and in a short space the whole number, amounting to thirty-six, were discovered. The next step was to search the prisoner Fox. They found on his person matches, and all other things necessary for his purpose. A dark lanthorn was discovered in a corner of the cellar. Fox made great resistance when the party attempted to search his person, but as soon as he was secured, he expressed his sorrow that he had not been able to fire the train which he asserted he would have done if he had been within the cellar at the moment when he was taken, instead of being at the door. Besides the lanthorn and the matches, there was found on the person of Fox a pocket watch. At that time, such a thing was very uncommon. He had procured this watch in order that he might ascertain the exact hour for firing the train. Such little incidental notices served to show the state of the arts and sciences at particular periods with their subsequent progress, better than the most labored treatises on the subject. At this time we learn that small watches for the pocket were very uncommon, for the fact that such a watch was found on the person of Fox is mentioned as a rare circumstance. What a contrast between that period and the present day, and yet, in many of the fine arts, the age of James I and Charles I vastly excelled our own. In the mechanical arts, however, it was greatly inferior. Sir Thomas Nivet, having secured Fox, returned to Whitehall about four o'clock on the morning of Tuesday the 5th of November, so that the discovery took place exactly twelve hours before the time when the train would have been fired if Parliament had assembled. The magistrate communicated everything to the Lord Chamberlain, who rushed without ceremony into the King's chamber, exclaiming that all was discovered, that all was safe, and that the traitor was secured. All the members of the council who were in London were now summoned to attend. Within a short space, Fox was placed before them, in order that he might be examined respecting this unheard-of treason. The prisoner appeared before them undaunted. Neither the awful situation in which he stood, nor the numberless questions which were put to him by those who stood by, moved him in the least. He not only avowed his participation in the treason, but regretted that he had not been able to execute it. Alluding to the discovery, he remarked that the devil, not God, was the author of that discovery. During the whole day, the council could extract nothing from him by their examinations. He took all the blame upon himself, refusing to name any of his accomplices, but acknowledging that he was induced to enter upon the treason from religious motives alone. 
he denied that the king was his lawful sovereign inasmuch as he was a heretic at this time he refused to disclose his true name calling himself john johnson servant to thomas percy in a few days however being in a prison he made a full confession of his guilt thus was discovered one of the darkest treasons with which our annals have strained divine providence interposed just at the moment when the conspirators believed that their expectations were about to be realized the merit of the discovery must certainly be attributed to the king for though it is clear that the letter evidently pointed to something of the sort yet before the treason was discovered most of those to whom it was submitted were in much doubt as to its meaning the king alone suggested that the vaults under the house should be searched and in such a case who can deny that the thought in the king's mind was suggested by a higher power let king james says fuller by reading the letter have the credit of discovering this plot to the world and god the glory for discovering it unto king james wilson's words were much to the same effect being discovered by a light from heaven and a letter from one of the conspirators when the fire was already in their hands as well as raged in their hearts to put to the train half an hour before their time when it was expected that the king would enter the house fox was to place a match in such a position that after burning during that space should fire the train he was to set sail for flanders for the purpose of obtaining succors from foreign princes and the rest of the conspirators were to manage matters at home it is said that those jesuits who were privy to the design but who could not publicly appear were appointed to meet on a certain spot on hampstead hill that they might behold the conflagration caused by the explosion this spot is still designated traitor's hill there is indeed a story which would lead to the belief that fox was to have been sacrificed by his brethren in crime i give the story as it is recorded in the histories of the period without pledging myself to its truth at tickmarsh in northamptonshire resided a mr pickering who had a horse remarkable for its speed keys one of the conspirators is said to have borrowed this horse shortly before the period fixed for the opening of the session fox after having fired the train was to proceed to st george's fields where he would find the horse in question on which he was to make his escape this was the impression on fox's own mind it was further arranged that mr pickering who was a well-known puritan should that morning be murdered in his bed and secretly conveyed away and that fox should also be murdered in st george's fields and so mangled as not to be recognized by any one a report was then to be circulated that the puritans had perpetrated the atrocious deed and to give some color to this report the conspirators were to appeal to the fact that mr pickering with his swift horse was there ready to escape but that some persons who saw him in detestation of so horrible a deed had killed him on the spot and hewed his body to pieces thus the mangled body of fox was to be taken for that of mr pickering it being supposed that no one would doubt the fact from the circumstance of the horse being found near the spot it is added 
that fox when he was convinced that it was the intention of his companions to put him to death confessed the whole plot which he would not have done but for his treachery on the part of his fellow conspirators such is the story but i cannot vouch for its truth footnote in a work published shortly after the discovery i find it positively stated that tresham was the writer of the letter to montego this merely shows what was the general belief at the time and footnote the fact that the vaults and cellars under the house of lords were then let out to hire for such purposes furnishes a singular view of the manners of the age when contrasted with those of our own times it appears that the inferior officers of the house made the most of their privileges at this stage of the discovery the king and his ministers were ignorant of the mine which had been carried along from percy's residence under the walls of the house of lords this was not known until some of the conspirators had made a discovery of all their proceedings great was the joy of the nation when it became known that such a treason had been brought to light and great was their gratitude to that omniscient being by whose gracious interposition the dark designs of the conspirators were frustrated end of chapter four Recording by Ed Demereaux.